thank you guys for taking a moment to say hi to everyone near you. Um, it's been such a joy to worship with you guys this morning. I'm Jen, and um, I'll just ask you guys to, to remain standing while I read this morning's scripture. Oh. <laughs> thank you. Um, yes, I will be reading Luke 17, 1 through 10. Jesus said to his disciples, things that cause people to stumble are bound to come, but woe to anyone through whom they come. It would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So watch yourselves. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them, and if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. He replied, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it will obey you. Suppose one of you has a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Will he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? Won't he rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready, and wait on me while I eat and drink, and after that you may eat and drink? Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Yeah, my name is Tim. I'm the lead pastor, and this is Connor, and he's a pastor to our high school students and, and also overseas. I knew you were going to get that. Part of his job is uh, pastoring our high school students, and then his, his other, kind of other half of his job is, is posing for uh, baptism photos. Yeah. It was up there for a long time. Every time we do baptism, my Google profile updates with a new like profile picture. Yeah, he actually oversees all of our our communication as well, so he's he's got a uh, a a lot on on his plate. And today we get to team teach together, so really excited for that. Yeah. And uh, before we do that, I can you throw that slide up for our Holy Week again? I want to just uh, pray for something really quick before we jump into scripture. Uh, We've got. there's three things happening this week in addition to uh, praying in this room uh, around the clock uh, and asking God to work, not just in us, but in our city, as, as Kim was talking about. Um, we're doing a brunch on, on Palm Sunday. And so for brunch, uh, brunch implies food. And so the way that we're doing that is we're RSVPing for what we're going to bring. So what we're going to do is we're going to set up tables in here. And because that takes up a lot of space, we're going to do two gatherings, one at 915 and one at 11. And so if you can go uh, online and sign up uh, for what to bring, uh, we're just going to line the place up with with food and and share a meal together and worship and and open up scripture uh, briefly as well to kick off our Holy Week. So please do that. Um, Would you also be considering who you can invite? Uh, Food is helpful to say, hey, will you actually come Come to church with me. We have people in our lives that might not come to hear about Jesus, but they might come for food. So let's take advantage of that. And then 
On Easter, a week later, uh, Resurrection Sunday, the same times, 9, 15, and 11. Uh, and as Kim said, we're going to be baptizing some folks and worshiping and telling the good news of Jesus again and celebrating together. And so it's just a, it's a great opportunity. So um, we're not going to be doing food together. So would you do this? Would you do food after our resurrection gatherings and invite somebody to come to church with you and then, to, and then you promise to feed them afterwards? <laughs> Let's do that. So here's what I want to do. Would you, uh, would you pray with me just for this week uh, coming up, starting a week from today, Holy Week, and specifically those two, two gatherings on April 2nd, Palm Sunday, and then Resurrection Sunday. Would you pray with me right now? And then we'll open up scripture together. God, as we've declared you in this place already this morning, you are good and you invite us to yourself. We've sung the very words of your son, Jesus, that are are written for us in scripture, but declare that you so love the world. And so we say it again and again that you, you love us, you love the world, and we want to be your messengers, your ambassadors. We want to embody your love to this world. Would you help us do that? And Holy Spirit, would you move and work in us right now here in this room, in this moment? We believe this is a sacred time where you're going to meet with us and lead us and guide us and change us. And then we want that for other people. So will you bring to mind people in our lives that are in our sphere of influence that live near us and down the hallway or down the street or work near us or that we interact with on a regular basis that, that we can actually invite to hear about you over the course of these next few Sundays and that we want to be your people that welcomes others in who don't know you and represent you really, really well. Would you help us to do that? And then in addition to that, would you give us the courage to actually follow through, to have a conversation or to send a text or a post or something that shares with them the, the invitation. And Jesus, we want to be able to point others to you. And we want to hear from you. So as we read your word together now, would you be the one that we hear? Would we hear your voice and your truth and your invitation and your grace? It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, a couple of years ago, I ended up on this like Wikipedia deep dive, like kind of unintentionally and ended up becoming a, like a pseudo expert on something I had no plans of knowing about what it was this idea of uh, micro nations. And there's across our globe, there are all these little self-proclaimed entities or communities or geographic areas where they've said we are sovereign and we are not a part of the thing around us. And if you start Googling, like one of, the, one of the ones that has maybe the best PR is the Republic of Malaysia. And, um, and they lay claim to a whopping 11.3 acres in the middle of Nevada where nobody else lives. And, and, um, and so what it is essentially is somebody's decided or I'm going to set up a nation or like my own little community and I'm going to like start over, like own civilization. And maybe unsurprisingly, the Republic of Malaysia came from Portland. It started in the 1970s <laughs> here. And then, uh, and then once they got their stuff figured out, they moved to Nevada where real estate was cheaper, perhaps. And um, so straight from their governmental website, uh, the Republic of Malaysia has its own Navy, Naval Academy, space program, railroad, postal service, bank, measurement system, holidays, online movie theater, and its own time zone. And I think we have a picture, but uh, it's run by the self-proclaimed benevolent dictator, uh, President Baugh, I think is his name. And, and this, is, this is maybe the best part, is their currency, instead of being based on gold or some fixed value like we base the American dollar on, it's based off the market rate for Pillsbury cookie dough. 
which according to some, some economists is actually a more stable resource than the American dollar. Um, so uh, the quote from this guy was that he was gonna have to get a second jacket to house the rest of his medals that I assume he's awarding to himself for being the president. Um, so, so there's many dozens of these spread across the globe. Um, and they, a lot of them have this like kind of tongue-in-cheek nature to them, like, like uh, the people who are part of them kind of know that they're in on the joke. But there's also this like, you kind of get this interesting case study in like human desire and vision where we're, we're like bent on creating like our, our the space or some like format where we can input like our best ideas of beauty, reality, justice, truth, government. Um, and however silly, this phenomenon represents like, like kind of a manifestation of those desires. And maybe what's uh, not so surprising is that a lot of them um, f fail pretty quickly um, or they don't grow. Um, so like this guy, th there's actually monthly visits on the calendar where you can go meet President uh, Ba and see his, his 11 acres. Um, but it's over the course of 40 or 50 years, like it's, it's not changed a whole lot other than him and maybe a couple friends or family. And so there's this like tension of big desire, like big vision. And uh, it turns out that even when we're left to like create it ourselves, we end up with the same kinds of problems that even the more established uh, formerly recognized nations like the United States of America or, or most around the globe, but we end up with the same problems where uh, greed enters the picture or corruption or disagreements about what is moral and what the penalties for morality should be. Like at a micro scale and a macro scale with a micro nation or a nation such as ours, like the, the, the failure point is the human. Um, it, there's, there's a tension between our longings for a better way and our limited capacity to actually create the thing that we're after. And so did, today, out of those verses um, that Jen read for us, what we're going to see is, is Jesus is, is often and, and always talking about what is the good life, what is the kingdom that he's bringing, what is God about. And, and in these verses, we get just a couple good handles on what it actually takes to take these things that we long for, that are built into us, that were like the goodness that we're haunted by, and actually like live them out in a real way, in a way that's meaningful and tangible here and now. We've been working our way through the book of Luke. So if you've been around for any amount of time, or if you saw the slide there, Luke, and then we're going to teach you the book of Acts. And... Uh, Jesus is at this at this point where he's regularly, if you've been with us the last few weeks, he's he, he's presenting and he's teaching about and addressing to his disciples really important things, not necessarily comfortable things, but really important things. And the reason is is that his time with them is limited. He's counting down his time. We're in chapter 17 this morning. If you back up to the end of chapter nine, so a number of chapters ago. There's this line that says, Jesus resolutely set his face towards Jerusalem, which means he had spent time forming a, a crew of disciples, calling these men close to him, building relationships, doing miracles, teaching with authority. People were amazed and were following him. He was gaining a following. But then he turned and it says he resolutely set his face towards Jerusalem, which means that nothing is going to stop him. With determination, he is headed to Jerusalem. And what that means and what it's forecasting is that Jesus is going to go to the cross and die. And now we're in chapter 17, and his time with his disciples is, is coming to a close. It's winding down. And so he's taking every opportunity to share with them really, really important things. 
And so as Connor just said, like our, our human desires and dreams have these really, we want to get along. We want to taste the good life. We want to experience things. And we have these ideals. And Jesus says, I actually have some that are even better than what you have. And here's some things that it takes. And he's going to present two things that, it, it, that are part of the good life. Two things that if we're going to follow Jesus, he says, these are really important. And he, he, he shares them with the disciples. And then he shares a third thing, which is what it takes to actually experience these two things, which are really high calling. And so we're going to look at these two things, and then we're going to hear the one thing that it, that it takes to embody these and, and live these things out. So of these two, here's the first thing. The first thing that we're called to as followers of Jesus, in, in this time, again, there's a whole long list, and Jesus is, as Connor said, Jesus is often talking about the good life and what it takes. But today what we're going to hear from him, the first of these two things, is that we are not a simple thing. We're not to cause someone else to be distanced from God that we're not to do, be, or behave in a way with another person or a group of people in our community with those around us in a way that creates distance between them and God. Mm-hmm. And there's two things that create distance between a person and God. One is just simply behavior, that we choose to go our own way other than God's way. The second thing is that we choose to believe things that are contrary to God. So in, in, those are two paths that head in opposite directions but aren't following God. And, and Jesus begins with saying it. And this is how he says it. Chapter 17, verse 1, it says this. First two and a half verses of our section day. Listen to these words of Jesus. Jesus said to his disciples, things that cause people to stumble, things that cause people to stumble are bound to come. But woe to anyone through whom they come. It would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So watch yourselves. I think the first thing I hear and notice in Jesus' words is his, it's his tone. Like, this is very serious. And you kind of uh, observe the conversation as he's turned towards the disciples, and I imagine a lot of eye contact and maybe even a hushed voice and saying, I, I really mean this. And though that phrase causing to stumble refers to like kind of the, the trigger or uh, the hitch in like a trap for an animal. So he's saying, don't, like, don't be the thing that would ensnare somebody else in brokenness or in sin. And, and I really appreciate that Jesus acknowledges that stumbling um, is part of the lived human experience. I think that's one reason his message is compelling is he doesn't do away with the stuff that is hard and that hurts that either happens to us or we cause. But he gives some like a very clear instruction to not be the cause of it and to avoid it um, as we can. And so there's, there's kind of the, as you were talking about, like there's the general reality of sin and brokenness and how it impacts me. And there's also, also the kind of the specifics of this context where Jesus is saying, don't uh, twist up or mess with the message of the kingdom of God, especially for people who are, who are maybe vulnerable, new to faith or young in the faith or young in age. Um, uh, do not be the cause of stumbling. And uh, one of the commentators we read, he uses an analogy of a millstone, which is like not terribly familiar to us. Um, I think there's a picture. And a millstone being this large stone that's used in agricultural setting that's pushed around, uh, usually in a circle by an animal. The idea is it's bigger, heavier than you could possibly carry yourself or swim with. And Jesus, instead of maybe saying, um, this is the the image that popped into mind. It's like a, a dad of a teenage daughter where they've got like um, some young suitor coming to the door to take their daughter out 
for a date. And it's like instead of dusting off like or getting the gun out of the closet or instead of like cracking your knuckles in front of this guy, Jesus like gets the millstone analogy out. <laughs> and it's, it's this like quite ominous threat where, where there's, uh, it's a little bit, ex- it's over the top and extreme. Um, uh, yeah, the, the, co- the comment was that it's like, like a mafia style death. It's very visceral, very like, oh, we can picture that. And that sounds awful. And there's no questions about how the story ends. Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm taking this seriously, and that kind of death would be better for you than getting in the way of me and my message or, or being the cause of somebody's uh, distance from God. And so hearing Jesus, like, like as a victim, like if, if um, as sin happens in my life or happens to me or somebody else uh, causes me to stumble, like I'm quite, I'm quite grateful for this reality because it feels just. It feels like okay, like God is paying attention to me. You hear his like fatherly protective heart um, that he does not want stumbling to be part of his children's lived experience. And I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for that. Like that feels like good justice if I'm the victim. But, but my experience is, is that I am not solely the victim of sin. I'm often the cause of it um, in my own life or in relationships around me. Like I am, if, as much as I'm a victim, I'm also a perpetrator. And so listening to Jesus um, a little bit shaking in my boots. I think like, like uh, there's, there's a fear that enters my thoughts of like, oh no, have I done this? Um, I, I know I've done this historically. Is there any way I've done this now, even unknowingly? Uh, it, it makes it feel a little bit impossible or a little bit stuck to, to know exactly like what to do with. Um, I'm very aware that I do not possess in me an ability to hit and meet God's good and righteous standard. Um, and that puts me in the place of, uh, of threat, uh, puts me in the place of punishment. So it's a little uncomfortable. Quite a bit. And uh, I'm, not, I'm not saying I thought this, yeah. but I, I, I wonder if anyone has looked at a millstone and gone, uh, I might be able to hold that. Okay. Jesus' point is he can't. Like, you're not like, I know I'm going to mess up. I, I wonder how, if I could yeah. hold my breath and hold that, somehow get away. No. Um, Jesus is, is serious about this, and yeah. he ends with this watch yourselves. And so uh, let's, let's put that in context a, a, a little bit because, um, and again, Jesus, his time is winding down with his disciples. He, he's really serious. These are important things. And so he's, he's saying the, the millstone thing is, is meant to, to impact us in that way, like I am, I am serious. This is how serious sin is in your life, and how serious getting off track. Let, let's say it this way: getting off track from the gospel, yeah. of of believing something else, or or uh, creating some way for yourself where, in your own power, you can be good and holy enough. And so, what happens is there's there's two different directions that we get off track here. Mm-hmm. And so, when Jesus is saying, "Watch yourself," he's saying. Take, take inventory of your impact on those around you and take inventory of yourself of, of what are you believing and how are you thinking and what are your own convictions. So here's the two, two different ways we, we get off track. One is that we choose to believe that, that everything is okay, that I, I can do everything. We, we actually sang it in a song that, that Jesus Christ and his grace that he offers us has set us free. So, so we are free. We are no longer condemned by the things that we do. You said in history, like historically, Connor has sinned. Connor is set free from that, both in the past and in the present, that there's freedom from that. But where we twist that and where we get off track 
and we make an error is that we think everything is okay. And Jesus is saying, between me and you, we can discuss that, but you need to watch yourself on the impact that you have on others mm -hmm. because not everything is okay for everyone. Mm -hmm. Somebody might decide this is a threat to, to me following Jesus and, and me obeying him. And here's just, this is a really simple and obvious example, but it's one that when I read this verse, this, just, this person's face pops into my mind. Um, and I need to start by telling you that um, when, when uh, Abby and I and our boys moved to Portland to be a part of Mosaic almost 16 years ago, I at that point, an age of, I think I was 33, I don't know that in one sitting I had drank an entire beer. I, I really appreciate you not laughing at me. Thank you. Um, I thought somebody might laugh. <laughs> I was 33. I just, I just didn't care for it. I, you held it in good. Um, I just didn't, it wasn't a big deal to me. I didn't, I, I, it, it just wasn't a temptation. It, I had not acquired a taste. My taste buds are highly immature. So they just hadn't acquired yet and that kind of thing. So I get to Portland and uh, the, some, some friends here at Mosaic took me out uh, right away and said, you've got to decide what kind of, what kind of beer you like. And I, um, I decided I like uh, Porter. Porter's dark, dark beer. I started with that. Um, I've grown a little bit past that, but not much. But um, and so I meet in my first year here. I meet uh, uh, a young guy named Jesse, and Jesse had just come to faith and was a part of our church. And I decided, hey, let's you know, he, we and I would talk on Sundays a little bit, and, and he wanted to meet. And so I said, okay, we can meet. We picked a night that uh, that, that we could both do, and we we somehow I don't even know how we ended up there, but we we decided to meet at a pub. And so we sit down at a pub, and I offered to buy him a beer. This seemed totally natural to me at, at that point. And he shares with me, I'm just gonna have water. And he says, uh, I, you know, alcohol is something I can't touch any longer. It, it destroyed my family in this way. It was one of the things that almost destroyed my life. I struggled with alcoholism. And actually, addressing my alcoholism is one of the things that led me to trust in Jesus and, and follow Jesus. And I just, you know, high pastor moment right there. Like, I had not even considered what that would mean for him. And, and, and immediately, I just apologized for him, thanked him for sharing his story, and said, and I've realized, like, okay, I can't just assume that something that I've become comfortable with that doesn't put any distance between me and God could actually create distance between him and God and could become a sin issue for him when it wasn't for me. Everything is not okay for everyone else. Now, between our eternal standing with Jesus, yes, we're forgiven. In terms of being helpful for one another, we have to watch ourselves and how we treat one another and the ways that we're sensitive. And this doesn't just have to do with alcohol. If you're like, that's not an issue for me, then, and then that this doesn't apply to me. Think of the words that you speak. Think of the things that you uh, post. Think of the topics you choose to discuss or joke about. Think of the things that you choose to watch and encourage others to watch all of our life can impact and affect others. And most of it probably for a lot of good. But Jesus is saying, watch yourself that you don't cause someone else to put distance between themselves and God. Mm -hmm. That's one direction that we can err in. The other direction that we can err in is just the, not thinking everything is okay, but thinking that I'm perfect. Mm -hmm. Thinking that I've got it all figured out. When, when we allow our, ourselves to be perceived in that way, it doesn't help other people. Now, some of us have a personal wiring and desire. I don't ever want to do anything wrong. And there's some good in that. 
But what happens is, is if we pursue that, if that becomes our vision, if that becomes something that we can think we can work towards and attain, what we do is we end up crowding out and pushing to the margins the very thing that should be at the very center of our life. And that's a savior who gave his life to extend us grace. And so if I can be perfect, I can slide grace out to the very margins and only ever, every once in a while need a little bit of help from Jesus instead of holding Jesus front and center. If I were to, to share with you that uh, I've been the perfect husband, not only would that be laughable and you wouldn't believe me and I would appear inauthentic, you, you wouldn't be able to relate to me. If I were to present to my, my children that I never made a mistake, I actually... Uh, desired this and had a vision for this when my first son Ethan was born. I am going to be the perfect dad. And I was for like 17 minutes. Like, and learning, and I've shared this before, but learning to apologize to a toddler, to a child, to a teenager, to a young adult of failures that I've made as a dad and husband has been gut-wrenching and embarrassing. But it points me back to Jesus and it not only reminds me, but it reminds those around me that I'm not perfect, that I need Jesus. One of the things that, is, as Connor talked about, that uh, to cause to stumble is a snare or a trap, is presenting that as a trap that you can be perfect without Jesus. Because then you're living on your own. And so what Jesus is saying here is watch yourselves that you don't lead somebody down a path that doesn't rely on, depend on, and absolutely desperately need the grace of Jesus. Those are the two sides that it can go. Yeah. Because of the reality of sin, the, the existence of stumbling and its consequences, because of the dangers of maybe even those two extremes, the second thing that Jesus points us to in this passage is, is critical. Uh, this is picking up the second half, half of verse uh, three. It says, if your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. Because of the reality of brokenness, according to Jesus, forgiveness is the essential thing that actually even opens the door for the life that we're hoping for. And we love, we love this at face value. Um, uh, and, but then we like kind of reread Jesus' instructions on forgiveness here. And to me, at least, the specifics really start jumping out. Wait, really, Jesus? Like seven times? Is this a little too forgivey, maybe, Jesus? Like, are, are, you, are you sure? Uh, this feels like I might be taking, being taken advantage of. Um, I don't like the word rebuke, just flat out. I'm not <laughs> super comfortable with it. And then this, this thing about must forgiving. Like, I must forgive. That absolute feels a little tough. Um, maybe a little hard to swallow. <laughs> So it's important to just, let, like, let's be really clear of what Jesus is, is saying here. Be, because this is going to happen, because you, people are going to stumble, I mean, watch yourself that you don't contribute to it, but it, that's out there that's going to happen. There's a need for forgiveness. And so when, when Jesus is talking about forgiveness, it's, it's really helpful to, to know what he's talking about. And we, we can kind of throw this out and, 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 and talk about it a lot, but let's be really clear. What forgiveness is in a biblical sense of what Jesus is calling us to is to give up our right to get even. When there's a need for forgiveness, what has happened is that somebody else has done something wrong that's impacted another person. That I've done something wrong, I've, I've, I've done something wrong against Connor and he's incur, incurred a debt. That there's been some kind of offense and he's lost something and so there's a debt there. For Connor to forgive me is to give up his rights to get even. That I no longer have to make it right. I can't make it right. What I can do, as, the, as this verse says, is I can repent and say, 
that was wrong. I didn't intend to do that. I should not have done that. I'm going to work to not do it again. And express repentance, genuine repentance. And then Connor says, I, I forgive you. He gives up his right to get even. But Jesus doesn't stop there in this call. And again, time winding down with his disciples. These are really important things. Not just that you give up your right to get even, that you forgive, but he goes a step further. And here's the second part, the additional part that Jesus adds in, that you give up the responsibility to judge someone else's heart. We are, we are really good at that in our own minds that we can judge somebody else's heart. And so Jesus is actually yeah. asking, not, not only, asking not only that we forgive, mm -hmm. but that you give up the right. So if I come back seven times, yeah. I mean, we all would collectively say like, my heart's not really in it, mm -hmm. but that's, that's not for us at this moment. Yeah. We're called to forgive, which is wild and crazy and uncomfortable. Right. Yeah, yeah, I just know that temptation so clearly to try and judge, judge the heart. You kind of referenced it in talking about your boys. My, our son Simon is three and he's perfect. Um, except that most of the time he's not perfect. And, and, and one of the things we're working on with him is this whole idea of like saying sorry and expressing repentance and then forgiveness. And I'm pretty good. Like I'm pretty good about the forgiving thing, like times one, two, and three. But then four, five, six, seven, about the same thing, the same uh, uh, thing he shouldn't be doing or the same way he's not listening or the same toy being thrown. Like I really wrestle with not like judging or wanting to import some new consequence on his repentance. And that's a pretty like safe relationship to be kind of working this out in, but it illustrates like this tension of like, ooh, man, I want to withhold the judgment of somebody else's repentance. I think I'm pretty good at it, like you said. Um, and I wanna be a forgiving person, but I want it on my terms. And that's not what Jesus is inviting me to here. It is, because this call is so dramatic in some ways, it's important to also know what Jesus is not saying you were a part of our, um, we did a workshop on forgiveness just a, uh, a few weeks ago, the beginning of this month. But one of the things that we did in there was really clarify what Jesus and what biblical forgiveness is not. And so just three quick things. Uh, one is uh, when somebody asks for forgiveness and, and we, we choose to forgive, we're not minimizing the offense. Even if they don't totally understand the full impact of it, we're not minimizing the offense. We do this all the time. It's just become, in, in, in our culture, it's just become normal. When somebody says, I apologize, it's just common, it kind of comes out, it's okay. To which I always say, and I did this with my kids when they were young, yeah. when I had to apologize to them and they would say, it's okay, I would go, well, hey, if it's okay, I wouldn't be doing this. This isn't fun for me. So it's not okay, don't let me off the hook, it's not okay. The Bible does not minimize the offense when it talks about forgiveness. The second thing is that it does not mean an instant restoration of trust. Now think about this in some of the most dramatic ways that we can and uncomfortable and painful is when there has been abuse, an abuser can actually come to the point of repentance and asking for forgiveness. And the abused can actually forgive without restoring trust. In most cases of abuse, that just simply wouldn't be wise. Biblical forgiveness, Jesus is not asking to give an instant restoration of trust. That's not what it is. And the last one is, is it doesn't mean that a relationship resumes once there's forgiveness. Again, if I've done something wrong to Connor and I've repented and apologized and he forgives me, depending on what I've done and how he's feeling, it might not be ready to resume relationship if ever. He can forgive without restoring relationship. Yeah. Yeah, so this, this hard call of Jesus, I think it's important to keep in front of us. What, like, why would this even be worth it? Because it feels so uh, far away from, from what, I, what my gut uh, desires are. And I, and I think the big invitation that Jesus is asking us to do is to 
um, is to trust that God is a better judge of repentance and a better arbiter of justice than I will ever be. And in the same way, like I'm invited to participate in the perfect love of God, which balances both justice and mercy. Um, even as, as God reveals himself in the Old Testament, he starts by saying, uh, I am the Lord your God. I'm compassionate and gracious. I'm slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. But he says, but, but I don't leave the guilty unpunished. There's this balance, this patient forgiveness and perfect justice coming into one. And so, so by, by us releasing, uh, releasing debts that we could collect on and by giving up the judgment of even motive we're inviting God to be who he is and, and even embodying like his character um, towards others, which sounds great. But I think what's so helpful is as we read on like the disciples, um, I find myself in the disciples response and maybe you will too. This is Luke 17, five. And the apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. <laughs> like, are you kidding me, Jesus? <laughs> like, you gotta give me more. That's impossible. <laughs> Which I think is really helpful because, like that, that that is often our reaction to Jesus, uh, and it should be like we we recognize the distance between me and the standard that God is setting out in front of me. And then Jesus' response is so is so great. Like so, the disciples go increase our faith, and here's here's what uh, Jesus responds with in verse six. He replied, Jesus replied, "If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted." and plant it in the sea, and it will obey you. Okay, like, that has not worked for me. <laughs> and I've tried with a lot smaller trees. No, I haven't really tried with any trees. But, I mean, we hear that, and we immediately think of the mulberry tree, this giant tree with these root systems that are intricate. Jesus picked it because of the root systems were so intricate. They, could, they, they, they have some mulberry trees that are as old as, as 600 years old. So imagine the roots that are developed, and to somebody pick it up. Like, I have to, I have to dig up a, a large bush in my, in my yard right now, and I don't want to because I know the digging that it's going to take. I can't imagine a mulberry tree. And Jesus says, you can pick up that mulberry tree and plant it in the ocean, which is, is really weird. Like, how is that going to Like, the whole thing is Jesus saying it's impossible. He uses millstone earlier, like, it's impossible. You're done for if you get, a, if, if you get thrown in with a, with a millstone tied around you. And it's impossible to see this mulberry tree picked up and move it. Like, you can't do it in your own might. But he's like, but we focus on the size and the impossibility of Jesus' illustration. But what he starts with is that if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, which is, just, just know this, it's really, really small. If, if you have just a little bit of faith, what Jesus is saying is we often focus on our perception of the size and strength of our own faith. And Jesus is flipping that and he's saying, no, 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 no. Disciples, guys, gals, you can have the flimsiest, smallest, just little bit of faith. But if you have a little bit of faith that you've placed in me, you can do amazing things in the kingdom of God. Mm -hmm. I heard it this way this week, and I don't know where this, this line originated from, but if you have strong faith, strong faith, big faith in a weak object, it will fail. But if you have weak faith in a strong object, it will succeed. It's a simple concept, but what Jesus is saying is, no, 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 I just want, I just want your little bit of faith. I just need your little bit of faith. Where I wonder if that's where most of us live most of the time, is that we just have a little shred left. And he's saying, place that in me and wait to see what I can do. Yeah. John and his wife, 
met at a service project as uh, in, on a college campus uh, doing a service project. And uh, they were both followers of Jesus and they started dating and got married and then later moved to Portland and had a couple kids, found their way to Mosaic where I met John. By the time that I met John, they had, had, had young kids in elementary school and he said, um, for a number of years, I have been praying for my wife because she has walked away from Jesus. She'll sit here in the room she lets me pray with the kids. She lets me pray at the dinner table. But she has told me she no longer believes in Jesus. What happened to her was partly in relationship to friendships and being influenced by people who didn't know Jesus, didn't know the gospel, and certainly weren't watching themselves. And she was influenced and impacted by them and walked away from Jesus. They stayed married, stayed parenting together, had a, had a strong marriage despite their differences in belief at that point. John would cry with me my heart would break for him as he's like, I do, all I can do, all I can do is pray for her daily, daily. After about 10 years, he shared with me, you know what? My wife came to me and said that she wants to talk about Jesus. It's just a little crack. She's not saying she believes yet, but it's something that hasn't happened in a decade. And I celebrated with him. I said, that's, that's amazing. And I began to tell him how much I admired his faith that you have been faithful and been praying for your wife for all of these years and celebrated with him. And he looked at me and he said the most interesting thing. He said, I, I really appreciate that. Thanks for cheering for me and encouraging me and praying for me. But I don't know that I have a faith that's worth admiration because I just have a very little bit of faith. And in fact, I think my faith and my hope for my wife coming back to Jesus has decreased over the years, but I've continued to pray for her. And be, I'm continuing to pray for her because I believe that God loves her more than I love her. And if he wants to bring her back, he can. That was a great illustration for me of this exact verse. God is going to move the mulberry tree. He's going to do the impossible of uprooting that root system and somehow getting it to plant in the ocean. He's going to do the thing that I can't imagine. And it's not going to be dependent on the size or strength or depth of my faith. It's me offering the little bit. Jesus is saying, if you have a little bit of faith, but if it's in me, trust what I can do and what I want to do in this world. There's these two things. that Jesus is calling us to, and neither of them are easy. When he says, watch yourself, that you don't create distance between somebody else in this world where we know that there is sin and brokenness, that that will happen. And so this other thing is to be a forgiving people that repeatedly, readily lives with the posture that is ready to forgive. Be this kind of people, but it's gonna take faith in order to live out these high callings. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Jesus um, ends this section with, with um, I think, just a, a perfect place for us to sit in today. Um, I, I want to ask us maybe some five questions to reflect on as we come to the communion tables. But these last verses, Jesus is uh, kind of painting this picture of the relational dynamic between a master and a servant. And Jesus' point is that um, none of like a servant just doing a servant's job earns uh, favor with the master. It doesn't, doesn't grant the servant any particular extra privileges for doing the job that uh, he's assigned to do. And, and Jesus is putting himself um, kind of in the seat of the master and saying, in my kingdom, this is the way it is. This is the way of not causing others to stumble, to forgive radically and generously, um, where small faith 
matters in big ways. And so our invitation as servants is to uh, start participating in the master's house like we're called to. Um, And what's beautiful about this invitation is as we do that, we demonstrate him, his character and kingdom as we act like him. Uh, What I find beautiful about the story of Jesus and where we're heading in Holy Week is that that, um, Jesus does not leave the dynamic as master-servant. And um, in... In Philippians 2, Paul writes that that Jesus humbled himself and became obedient. Um, He took on the nature of a servant and became obedient to death and even death on a cross. And as the master, Jesus chooses to embody servanthood most fully by giving up his life, by by following the Father's will and dying in our place. John 15 Jesus talking to the disciples says, um, I no longer call you servants, but I call you friends because you know my business and I've invited you into it. And when, then what Jesus does in the first instance of communion is invites his servants, the disciples, to the communion table where he then washes their feet, this act of service, and prepares a meal for them, which is his body and blood, which uh, is symbolizing his body broken and his blood poured out for the sake of them and all of humanity. And so what a perfect way to come communion, knowing that we are incapable in and of ourselves by meeting God's good, perfect, and righteous standard of creating the life we long for and dream about. But as we step into the master's house and uh, participate in that economy of radical forgiveness, grace, paying attention to how we're acting on behalf of others, we're met by the master himself serving us. Um, so I'd love, as the band starts to play, I just want to um, ask these five questions. I'm going to read them, try to read them slowly, um, just to give us something to reflect on. We've, through Lent, we've been trying to come to communion um, just in a, in, a, in a posture of confession, knowing that that part of communion means, uh, means joining God in what is true and what is good and what is right. And we want to acknowledge the ways where we're missing that or want to embrace that more fully. And so listen to these questions and then... Um, and then the communion tables will be open. Have I intentionally or unintentionally been the cause of stumbling for someone around me? Have I been holding on to forgiveness, unwilling to give it to someone who has repented? Is there stubbornness in me where I have failed to repent when I've been correctly rebuked by a brother or a sister? Am I holding on to what I believe is the right kind of justice? Or have I held up someone's forgiveness in, in trying to judge their motive? And this question just uh, corresponds to this invitation of faith. Is there, is there a way that I've been waiting for greater faith instead of following Jesus where I know he's already been leading me? And so Jesus, we come to your table knowing that as the master, you have served us and brought us to a meal of your very body and blood. We want to follow you into your kingdom, learning to live like you and act like you towards each other and so that our world might see you clearly and more fully. And so inspire us to repentance. Thank you for your gentle rebuke and how it corrects us. And we trust that as you invite us to forgive radically and generously and patiently, that that is your attitude that you forgive us radically and generously and faithfully and invite us to place our small faith in